Well, we're here. Episode 23. I am here. Zach, the bear is here. What's the bear's name, Zach? I thought I was Zach the bear with my new nickname. (laughs) Um, The bear's name um, is uh, Muffin. (laughs) I made this up on the spot. And why is that what I came up with? I don't know. Muffin. He looks like a muffin. Look at this old guy. (laughs) I used to be obsessed with Smokey the bear when I was a kid. This is like a real thing. I thought it was the coolest thing because you go to the firehouse and there would be like Smokey the Bear with a fire helmet and you get a fire helmet. It's like, this is what four-year-olds love. It was like four-year-old me was like, fire trucks are awesome and there's a bear. But um, yeah, uh, we have a guest today who is not a bear and does not um, own a Smokey the Bear. Maybe we'll find out. Uh, Matt Queller is here. Matt, how are you? Hey, doing good. Doing good. Did you have a childhood obsession with Smokey the Bear? Uh, you know, I don't really think I did. I remember the, the commercials were fun, but uh, yeah. no, no. No, you didn't I didn't start a forest fire, so that was so. I guess he did his job. <laughs> <laughs> Although he I didn't prevent any either. So he is one of the world's easiest jobs if you think about it. Like the only people who cause forest fires these are like complete morons. Like that person in California last year who started <laughs> one with like a gender reveal party or something. Do you remember this? The big forest yeah. fire last year in California was like somebody was like, "We're gonna do a gender reveal with fire because this is a great idea and will never backfire." And then <laughs> burned California to the ground. Do you think this means we need Smokey the Bear back? Like, no time has been more important for Smokey the Bear to have a bigger presence. It seems like the, the forest fires have been going up and up over the recent years. So, Should we have given Smokey the Bear the Democratic ticket? <laughs> I think Smokey the Bear should replace... Um, or should maybe work with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think I think Smokey the Bear and Arnold Schwarzenegger is the new team up we need. <laughs> Do you know why I um, chose this bear to hold? Um, I did work with black bears. I did have a black bear touch my butt once. Um, <laughs> we'll leave the story there. <laughs> you can't. You can't. <laughs> you have to tell the story, Zach. Please tell us the story of the black bear that touched your. There butt. was a bear, and her name was Pina, and I was carrying food to feed her at the sanctuary I worked at. And I knew okay. she was getting close. I was like, I "Think she's gonna touch me?" And we let her touch me because we weren't allowed to touch them. So I just like ignored her and she and nuzzled, nuzzled my my, my left butt cheek. This is like the good was it my life? I don't know. This was eleven years ago. <laughs> This is the non-dangerous version of Grizzly Man, where Zach is sane and the bear didn't need him. <laughs> but uh, let us continue on to last Letterbox movie, our favorite intro, Zach Ford. We're putting hey. on first the bear, not the bear's last movie, your last movie. I legit can't remember the full name. There we go. Okay. Uh, so 2021 is the year of loose sack. Uh, I, I, last year on our podcast is me constantly talking about movies from 1985 or 2003 or because I was doing all these director things. And I decided to go rogue and not live my life by obligation and by strict organization. And, and I'm letting the whims, the winds of the whim take me away. Um, and the first thing I decided to randomly watch when scrolling through um, Criterion um, channel was uh, the documentary John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection. Um, I am a, well, I would say former big tennis fan. I like to say I'm a tennis fan, but I literally just forget whenever the tournaments are on, just I'm fully unaware. Um, but I was a tennis player through high school. It was a big part of my life. I played for like three to four hours you know, every day through my last couple of years of high school. Um, was I good? I was, I was Lorraine, Ohio good. Um, 
but so this did have a interesting aspect. It's not like at all a biographical documentary. It's um, much more artistic than that. Is based on all these or collects all these um, film rules that this French filmmaker collected um, at Roland Garros during one of the French Opens. Um, that was really just kind of focusing on his physicality. Um, it, it, whether playing or arguing a refs or walking around the court, but how you can really create kind of a portrait of someone just through their physical motions without um, kind of getting rid of, you know, John McEnroe's mouth, which he's pretty famous for, taking away the words and just trying to understand who he is through how he appears and how he uses his body. Um, it's really intriguing. I, I think, I don't know how much there is to offer for someone who is not into tennis because there is just so much watching him like serve a ball repeatedly. Um, but maybe you can find, find, like, get entranced by the motion and learn it all. But I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, um, and I look forward to the 2021 year of Lusek. That makes it seem like I'm going to be fucking everybody. <laughs> this is exactly why when you asked if that was a bad name, I said, no, you should totally go with it. Because it makes you sound like a whore every time you say it. That 2021 colon rogue Zach. <laughs> No, I mean, I've never seen this. My experience with John McEnroe is that he is in the Lonely Island short. Um, that's kind of my experience with John McEnroe because uh, while I can admire the skill of tennis players, I don't find myself watching them very much. Uh, Matt, what's the last movie you watched on Letterboxd? Uh, the last movie I watched, I actually watched today. I was kind of just doing the usual scrolling through Netflix for an hour trying to pick something. And I saw a preview for uh, Straight Up, and it seemed kind of interesting, so I checked it out. Actually, I uh, enjoyed it. It's pretty much kind of like a romantic comedy. Just kind of imagine a romantic comedy about a gay guy and a straight woman trying to form a relationship without sex. But the dialogue was like zip-zap, rapid-fire. It's almost like an Aaron Sorkin wrote a romantic comedy. It was really interesting. There aren't. I didn't really recognize too many of the people in it. Uh, Randall Park shows up at one point as uh, one of the parents. But he had a good little part in it. But yeah, it was interesting. I, I definitely recommend uh, people give it a shot. Straight up. Let's see. Yeah, he, Matt is the only person um, that has watched <laughs> Letterbox. Not just my friends. Just the only person told Yeah, me. I think it just popped up on Netflix. Uh, it's uh, directed by James Sweeney. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard of him this before. Is Interesting because it reminds me as well. It, it reminds like, me of Adam Driver's first movie, Gaby, which is also about a gay man and a straight woman like having a kid together in a relationship where they're not really together. Mm -hmm. Um interesting. Yeah, the, the leads had really great chemistry together in it. So it, it, I, I I thought it worked out really well. And it, it Yes. Said, yeah, the, the end, you, know, you don't know really where it's going to go in the ends, but I, I thought they did all right. And they kind of left a little ambiguity to it. So who knows? But yeah. yeah nice, nice, nice tight 97 minutes. Always a good thing when oh, it comes yeah. to movie wise. That, that was one of the main deciding <laughs> factors. <laughs> I, I know we have all sat there and sorted our movies to watch by length and then watched the shortest one um, because, you know, it just makes life easier. Um, the last movie I watched um, was. 1952's Lost in Alaska, which is the Abbott and Costello movie, where they play um, volunteer firemen who get um, who rescue a gold prospector who is trying to kill himself by drowning, and in the process become embroiled in a plot to um, assassinate him because 
he decided to stupidly make a will, which would left all his gold to other prospectors. And the prospectors won't get the, the map to the gold until he's dead. So basically, the other prospectors decide, well, if we can't get the gold until he's dead, we should just kill him because then we can have the gold. And, um, you know, Abbott and Costello hilariously get involved in um, all the hijinks. They uh, eat whale meat and someone gets the blowhole, classic joke. Um, they get into a fight where they're told to throw everything but the kitchen sink and then proceed to throw the literal kitchen sink at somebody. Always the classic joke. Uh, just, you know, um, not the best Abbott and Costello movie. It's like somewhere in the 15 to 20 range of their entire collected works. But, you know, it, it's enjoyable, it's fun, and it has like the classic uh, duo comedy that they are known for. I'm really confused about this blowhole bit. Um, <laughs> like, so if they got the blowhole, wouldn't it just be nothing? Because it's a, it's a hole? Yeah, but it, it's a blowhole, and then he tries to cut into it, and it shoots water in his face. How are they cut into it? It's a hole. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible. It's they take the circle. You got the blowhole in the piece of meat, and you try to cut in it, and it sprays oh. water in your face. <laughs> so blowholes don't have to be connected. I think that's pure science, right? Abbott and Costello, like our official science. <laughs> yes, please they, they cite them. <laughs> cite them in your biology papers. Please, please, please. Um, let's continue on to our discussion of our main film, which is, of course, Man on Fire. The second that collaboration. Man is on fire. That Matt is on fire. <laughs> it was the bear singing out. So don't, don't judge my voices. Bear has a lovely I, voice. I understand. I understand. So this is the second collaboration between Denzel Washington and Tony Scott. And... It comes nine years after the first one, so quite a bit of time has passed. But before we get into our discussion of the film, we're going to make Zach Ford do the impossible, which is explain the plot on Man on Fire. I, I tried to get out of this one. It's like, can we just skip it this time? We've accidentally skipped it before. Uh, let me off the hook, because um, I, I, we, we postponed this episode um, because Lucas is a delinquent. And um, so I watched it two weeks ago, and Famous I don't know how it's we also skipped on the School of Rock episode a plot that is incredibly easy to explain versus <laughs> which is incredibly hard to explain, but we're going to make you do it anyway. Okay, so Denzel Washington plays a like ex-CIA agent, maybe CIA, um, agent slash alcoholic slash uh, now a bodyguard slash swim coach. And um, he gets hired, and why is he in Mexico? No one knows. Christopher Walken sets him up with this gig to be a bodyguard for uh, this guy that has a lot of money in Mexico City. I don't know what he does. I thought he was a drug guy, but I don't think automaker. he is. He's an automaker. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. didn't. So I just. I learned, up and up I learned just part. watching the movie, not reading the Wikipedia page. After <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I thought about just reading the Wikipedia page, but I thought that would would last one second of. Um, so he he bodyguards for uh, Dakota Fame, the uh, the very Mexican daughter of um, Antonio Banderas, um, the automaker. Um, and because wait, wait. Lot, there's a lot of kidnappings in Mexico City, so they like have they have uh, bodyguards. Yep. What am I waiting about? It's not Antonio Banderas. <laughs> 
Um, oh no, it's fucking it's um no, sorry. Same concept, Mark Anthony, who's who's uh let's be clear if this movie had Antonio Banderas to that, it is a very different movie. I mean Mark Anthony. Because I spent half an hour going, wait, Mark Anthony acts and just like completely was unaware of this. I guess he was an actor mainly, but who knew? Um so Mark Anthony, who looks like he's 18 years old, um, it, it, he had to get a bodyguard because there's a lot of kidnappings in Mexico City. Um, Denzel Washington, I think, lost a child. I, they never make it like too clear, but there. So now he just drinks all the time and looks sad. Um, but then he bonds with Dakota Fanning um, through swimming and through her just like being a nosy son of a gun to ask a lot of questions. Um, and she's just like got the Dakota Fanning chime. Uh, and then um, she gets kidnapped because I did so bad his job then. Like he was purely there so she didn't get kidnapped and they let go. Why would they even talk to him more? He should have. Okay. Anyways. Denzel's so mad about this kidnapping more than the parents. Um, so he, because uh, she was able to break his Ryan little Grinch heart down. And so he wants to give revenge by just like shooting everybody until um, he gets to who um, it involved. And it turned out it was a plan between uh, Antonio Banderas slash <laughs> Mike Anthony, um, all trying to do it for insurance fraud because he actually was running out of money because of stuff his dad left him. I don't know. Stuff his father's father issues they threw in there. Uh, so, so Mark Anthony and um, Mickey Rourke all set this up. Um, who's Mickey Rourke? His lawyer. Don't worry about it. Um, and then Denzel um, gives him a gun to shoot himself, which happens. And then, like, that shit goes on for, like, 40 more minutes, and I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> so, the end. <laughs> the Cody Fanny's alive, by the way. And also, yeah. The important part is that the, he realizes after searching for the kidnappers that the kid is alive, and then he trades himself yeah. for oh, yeah, the girl. And then, then there's, I guess, two out two endings of this movie. Which are only slightly different. It's it's a, it's a weird, interesting thing. Um, I'm gonna let Matt go first because you're the person who picked this movie. We gave you some options, and you said I want this one. Um, what's your connection to Man on Fire, and then why? Why do you like Man on Fire? Uh, Man on Fire. I I can't remember if I saw it in the theaters or not when it came out. I know I saw it when it came out on DVD. It's a. I mean, I I know that I like a lot of action movies and stuff. So, and I thought this was kind of a classier version of an action movie. Because you pretty much got Denzel doing a part that Stallone or Schwarzenegger normally would have done. And you still even have Denzel delivering like the action movie one-liners when he's taking out the bad guys. But yeah, I mean, I, I really love when um, Crimson Tide was amazing. So this is kind of their second movie, like I said earlier. And this one, I think out of all the ones they've done, I think after Crimson Tide, this is probably the one that I think of as most uh, memorable for me. Now, I, I know I'm sure we'll probably talk later about how it's probably longer than it should be but uh <laughs> I, re I, re I really love connected though with the uh i like that they give time for denzel and to go as fan characters kind of where you actually see where they can uh, kind of form a relationship and you can see why denzel would actually want to uh go through all the things that he goes to after he thinks she's been killed and that sort of thing but i mean i thought i was thought it was just uh, pretty well acted by some of the actors in it some of them not so much uh, there, there are some pretty good, interesting action sequences in it, and uh, it's Tony Scott with his 
crazy uh, filmmaking period, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on too. But yeah, it, it's just one I kind of enjoy. Absolutely. Um, Zach, you're on the opposite end of this. You really did not like this movie. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the biggest things that just don't work for you? Yeah, because Matt pinpointed what does work, which is, I think, the pacing for the first half, as far as how much time they devote to the relationship. Um, but once it gets to the action of it all and its idea of what suspenseful filmmaking is is just extremely hard to watch and not hard to watch in like an uncomfortable way just like having any idea what is going on and, and um having any kind of smoothness to it it's it's between the sound design and the editing and um the hand cam all at once just creates such a shaky um like over the top intense experience that just kind of leaves you confused. Um, there's no clarity of action. No, um, sometimes there will, he'll be just walking and like being drunk as he is and think, committing, uh, thinking about committing suicide. And there's just like crazy sound effects that happen all of a sudden that kind of just like take you out of it. And a lot of like random, like close ups, just so many editing cuts all the time. And, and, and um, it just almost like they have to give like a, a warning for epilepsy or whatever because it's like a strobe light of just editing shots things coming up i think that he was going for like the chaotic um like feel of like what it may be to be in like the middle of like drug wars or uh or trying to create this like really connect feeling to mexico city but really it's just like a headache and it makes you have lacks any ability to actually connect with the characters in the story because they're so distracted by um what's happening too much because base level like the relationship between you know D dakota and denzel is so strong but then i've taken out of that you know the comfort i feel with that by by just constant cuts and shaky hand camps it is an interesting thing where the first half of the movie is somewhat more traditional filmmaking when the relationship is being formed it is a little bit more like um normal shooting there's not a lot of crazy but when he goes on the hunt yes it i do think it's in it didn't it didn't always knock the movie for me but there are definitely moments where i'm like can you just stop you're a really talented filmmaker you don't have to do these weird things you could just do kind of normal shots and this would work as well and i feel like i feel like he's really going for it but it's at sometimes i think he doesn't realize or no one is around him telling him hey this makes it more confusing and not less confusing um it's definitely a movie that is really split if you look around like you, you know you take a quick perusal uh rotten tomatoes famously this is one of the ones under 40 percent and kind of one of the ones it and hot rod you commonly refer to as like the ones like under 40 percent that are actually people can really like i feel more in line with the hot rod crowd than i do with the man on fire crowd um but if you go to like imdb this movie is nearly eight out of ten like there are people who clearly like this movie there's also, um, I, I even went on Letterboxd, I looked at people I follow, and it's like, there's most people are in the middle at about three stars. There are some really high people, and there are some really low people. And I feel like this movie kind of has, you do kind of have to, you have to like, you have to be on its wavelength. Matt, clearly on its wavelength, you watch this movie, and you know, a lot of the stuff worked for you. I actually have an interesting counterpoint to you guys. I am kind of in between. I thought this was like, a okay movie, but definitely flawed. I think it's too long. I think two and a half hours is just is a problem. And I honestly think you could cut the weirdly, the Dakota Fanning and Denzel part is strong, is but 
it's the part that feels the least Tony Scott. Tony Scott, I feel like the the classic Tony Scott is. It doesn't make it bad. <laughs> is that you could you would argue as like oh, to make it the more Tony Scott, you would cut that part because Tony Scott is like. I feel like traditionally, like he gets to the action, and gets to the meat of story really quickly. In this movie, it's like an hour plus in before we even get to Denzel hunting down the kidnappers, which traditionally would be more like fifteen to twenty minutes into a Denzel movie. So I was interested. If you had, if, Matt, you even commented on the length. If you had to trim this. Like, well, first, do you think the length is a problem? And then, secondly, how would you? Um, what would you trim to make the movie maybe be less um, long? If uh, or, I, I, I think I agree with Zach that you really need to keep all the uh, Denzel Dakota stuff. I mean, you can probably keep cut out some of the stuff. You don't need to see him drinking alone in his room like three or four <laughs> times. I think one surprise suffice, and maybe honestly cut out all the stuff with like the reporter and the uh, other head of police guy, whatever that is. You, you don't need any of that stuff. Denzel can take care of all the stuff on his own somehow. Christopher Walken could probably look up a license plate or something like that. You, you don't really need all them. And then maybe take out maybe one of the interrogation Denzel scenes or something like that. But yeah, I, I, I think that you probably could at least trim maybe 20 minutes out just by taking out some of that stuff. But I, I agree with Zach. You really, you really need the relationship with Dakota and Denzel to really sell it. Yeah. I have a very nice, easy, clean cut. Uh, Mark Anthony shoots himself. Um, <laughs> Dakota Fanning pops out of a closet. Movie over. <laughs> like the whole like last thirty five minutes is nonsense. It's like a video game where you have the big boss, and it's like, guess what? There's a bonus big <laughs> boss. It's like they seem like like Mark Anthony was the captain. That was the twist ending, and they decided, you know mm. what? There's actually a, tie a whole another half hour of an ending and go. We're going to act like really the person who matters is this drug lord who we are just introducing now in the last twenty five minutes. Someone we had no care. I mean, the, the voice was pretty much the main bag all along. It's just Mark Anthony's a scumbag who was trying to use his daughters to get the insurance money from the kidnapping. He just didn't know he was dealing with the wrong people. So yeah, the real bag all along was society. Yeah. <laughs> I do think. City. I do think that the the whole like twist with it turning out to be Mark Anthony is there's a really big tell in the movie for me that there's going to be a twist. And that's Mickey Rourke playing this seemingly nothing lawyer character who appears right at the beginning. And I think if you're a movie watcher like us who kind of like knows all the actors, you're sitting there and going, how has Mickey Rourke only been in this movie for like two minutes? You're like, I feel like in some ways it gives you a tell that there's going to be a twist later on related to him. Cause you're like, I know Mickey Rourke is not in this movie for four minutes. Did anyone else have this tell or is this just a me thing? To be fair, this is like early 2000s where Mickey Rourke isn't really doing anything at all. This is kind of yeah. like where he was dipping his toes in and trying to get back. That's why it didn't – yeah, it didn't um, – actually, I was more told by by uh, Mark Anthony because he just looks like a sleazebag <laughs> in the time. You know, you can't trust this guy. And they gave him like a full sex scene. Like that sex scene has to come back and it has to be the – the betrayal that he has for the wife. Otherwise, it's just a random sex scene because he would have nothing to do with the movie. Otherwise, um, they had to bring it back to him somewhere. Um, I, I do want to ask, is this the last time Mickey Rourke looked normal? I, I was going to say that this is like right before he reaches his last evolution where he's like doing uh, Iron Man 2 and stuff and he just looks before out comes there. Out rushing with <laughs> oh, you guys forget. Yeah, you, guys, yeah, you guys forget Expendables where he... <laughs> is speaking a foreign language 
while speaking English. <laughs> Literally cannot understand him in the entire movie. I have to look this Well, up. the wrestler was his, like, come out, like, look at me, I look like a weirdo now. That was before Iron Man 2. Yeah. He just well, looks I, old. We, we don't know how he looked in the Sin City under all the makeup, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he goes straight from this into Sin City, and then Domino... Right, he looks like a weirdo. Yeah, that's the but that's makeup issues. Too. Now, if you want to see a movie where Tony Scott goes overboard with the the camera stuff and it doesn't work, watch Domino. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, I already watched uh, this. I already seen it. <laughs> oh, Zach, buckle you up for the rest of the, the Denzel so, Tony Scott movies. <laughs> I know. I mean, we did Crimson Tide, and Crimson Tide is like so tight and mm -hmm. so clean in a lot of ways that this was the opposite. This was almost like Tony Scott being an experimental filmmaker. It's like, I'm going to throw in shit that like no one has seen, which uh, it hasn't been seen for a reason. Just it, it, It's definitely jarring to see the two back to back as we're doing yeah. this watch through. They are so different because mm -hmm. going into this, I had seen Taking Upon the One, Two, Three and Unstoppable. And so I watched Crimson Tide and I'm like, yeah, this totally makes sense. This is very much like Unstoppable. It's very tight. It's very technical. It gets to the action quickly. It has, you know, and then you jump into this one. And I think I like had to like watch this in sections at, at sometimes because I would feel myself like losing focus, especially like, you know, you're like 55 minutes into this movie and you're like, why, why is he teaching her how to swim? Like, I'm not like disliking it, but like you're confused. Like, I'm like, you know, cause you're just, you kind of have this ingrained mindset of like a Tony Scott movie, you get into the action and I'm just like, where is this? Where like you don't know where you're going. Um, you're right. There's all these weird side characters. Like there's the weird cop guy. There's the weird reporter. And you're like, why are these people in this movie? They're not famous actors. Like I've re I recognize the cop guy. I don't recognize her. Like it, this movie is just like a really. It, it feels like Tony Scott had like a real passion for the story. So um, I was doing some research before this. This movie is Tony Scott wanted to make this movie in the '80s. Uh, they wouldn't let him. They were like, you don't have a, this. You've only done one movie. No. So um, they made a version in set in Italy. So that's, I guess, where the original story is set is in Italy. And they did it with Scott Glenn and Joe Pesci and a bunch of other people. And I don't think anyone has ever heard of this movie. It's not famous in any respect. Um, Tony Scott then. I'm watching it. <laughs> 2021 Lou Zach may watch 1980s <laughs> then Tony Scott goes makes um, Top Gun and the studios go okay you just made the, the biggest hit of the year um, you can kind of make whatever he wants and then years later he does this remake and it feels like sometimes when people are so passionate about a story or so passionate about an idea it kind of backfires on them and there are times where it feels like you were so passionate about this weird twisting story with the nine teen characters and all these side avenues that you maybe weren't seeing as clearly that they're like, that there needs to be stuff trimmed that, you know, maybe not every single piece of the story is actually needs to be part of the movie. And it really feels like it sometimes he just like let him, he's just like, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to make every part of the story. And, you know, I want that reporter and I want that guy. And, there, this movie does feel like um, he wasn't – there was nobody who was able to tell him no in that room, and he was just mm -hmm. kind of like doing it every once. Like it feels like he just went yeah. to complete excess, and in some ways I think it doesn't necessarily work with the Tony Scott-like mentality. It felt like he thought this was his masterpiece for sure. Like this, he thought he was like making heat. 
this was going to be his heat. Um, this is like classic crime drama and, mm. and have, you know, revolutionary editing and, you know, epic story length and take which otherwise could be, you know, like seen as trash, but elevated. Cause I think he thinks he's elevating this trash <laughs> to where he's making the trash just indistinguishable um, and decipherable is a better word. Cause it's that's, what, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Early. He's like, he's, he's got Denzel now, so he can't just make his standard action movies. He's got to kind of bring it up to Denzel's level. He tried to at least, <laughs> but I feel like he had no trust in what he had. Mm. Trust, you know, the, the story you have. Trust the actors you have. Trust that relationship that you're building between the characters, and don't think you need to add so much flair. Mm. It's almost like you're not trusting mm. the audience that they need to be shocked and surprised, and you know, engaged by all this other stuff by like random words and the ugly ass font on the screen. Um, it just adds nothing to the movie. It has no purpose to the story. Um, I, I, I think a, a cleaner form of this narrative, like honestly, would probably make it a good movie for me. I, it, it's just the distracted parts of it. But but that movie has already been made plenty of times. This one looks cool. I don't think there is a movie that has as much patience with that with the relationship between a a, a kid and an adult and, and that kind of um, I don't know like breaking down someone from their grief and it being a non-family member uh, it, it, how a kid can affect a stranger for the most part it, i think the attention they give to that is unique to a crime thriller that that's why he's adding something new to it so he had it there but he just didn't think it was enough well i think you're i think it's a movie that has the setup in the beginning of a drama that turns into an action spy movie and in yeah. some ways i think that the genre bending is one of the reasons it's a really kind of a weird movie to watch because you do start this movie and you're like, oh, is Tony Scott making a drama? And then it kind of becomes um, the action movie. I think there's actually, um, this movie does something interesting. When they start hunting down the kidnappers, we're not given a lot of information. And I think this movie makes a, a, a kind of a big, has a big flaw here in that Denzel is seemingly just, he's able to find all these people. He just figures everything out. But the movie never sets him up as the Sherlock Holmes. It never sets him up as the guy. Like when you watch a Sherlock Holmes thing, you kind of – the audience is willing to go along with the idea that he's going to figure it out. And so even if we're not given the information ourselves to figure it out, you kind of go along with the character because you've set up this idea of excellence. This the, He's the idea that he's just – he understands things better. And I think this movie kind of has a little bit of a flaw in that Denzel is set up to be good at his job with an alcohol dependency, but there's, mm -hmm. there's nothing that we're given in the early on stage of this movie that tells us he is in some way exemplary or amazing. Um, and so that when we're so nice with exemplary, because here's the thing, he's not a great detective. They don't make him out to be the difference between Sherlock Holmes and Denzel Washington's character and man of fires. Um, Sherlock Holmes uses deduction to solve his mystery, and Denzel Washington uses uh, like smashing hands and shooting other people um, in front of them so he gets told the facts. No, He's no, not I, really trying to. He doesn't solve it. He just gets people to tell him shit. Yeah, yes, go from A to B to B C. Yeah. Which is fine, yeah. but he has to find the people. Even and and I feel like that's in some ways a thing I have a problem with the movie is that they never explain to me how he gets from person A to person B to person C. Even when he's interrogating the people, there he's not always given clear information. He somehow he makes these jumps in like um, logic and reason 
that I don't think necessarily play in line with the character that's set up in the movie. It's interesting that they spend so much time focused on um, the relationship between him and Dakota Fennec, which I agree is important, but I feel like they don't necessarily set up um, Denzel as a character and give us an explanation and an understanding of why this character would be able to go and hunt down these kidnappers as effectively and efficiently as he does with absolutely no help from anyone around him. I feel like they kind of established that he's been doing this sort of stuff his whole life. And I guess just recently it's starting to weigh down on his soul and he's gone to the alcohol. And now that he's mm-hmm. kind of off the alcohol and he's actually got a mission and reason again, he's kind of getting back to his old ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, of course, you have Christopher Walken delivering that speech, kind of hyping <laughs> him up to the cops. And like, hey, this guy can do this stuff. And this is about to be his masterpiece. So. <laughs> It is a very interesting and kind of funny Christopher Walken just like, <laughs> he's like, hey, can I have some money and then I'll show up twice in your movie? <laughs> and he's like, I, I, I would like to do this. career should be. He's just do 10 minutes in like 20 movies a year. And he's he's kind of great, right? If you're Christopher Walken, you've gotten to the point where you're asking prices high enough that you can be like, hey, I'd like to just be the guy who makes the speech and leaves. And like, I'll fly out to some <laughs> exotic location for a couple days and then I'll just leave. But see, now, if anything, I, I say, if anything, I want to see the prequels where you got Denzel Washington, Christopher Walken, like running militias or something in foreign countries. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that is the movie that I actually would be interested in seeing. Um, the Young Man on Fire. That's what I'm <laughs> the young... <laughs> Boys on Fire. Um, I just have a, an off topic thought. Has Christopher Walken not done any animated movies? Like, does he not give voice roles? Do you think he still is not interested? Because he has such a distinguishable voice that you there's nothing think about this i'm running through it there is nothing he was in nine lives with a name that sounds like a cat felix (laughs) that can be a businessman (laughs) it is weird though because if you would think about christopher walken's career as we go down the side path to you he's like really famous for his voice he is in ants is he really this. So you get oh. ants with Woody Allen and Christopher Walken, oh, yeah. the most He's... impressionable voices you can possibly have in one animated movie. He does have one other voice role. I'm surprised that I've got this. He's King Louis in the John Favreau's The Jungle Book. Yeah, he's great in it. <laughs> he's actually pretty good in that. I do enjoy that scene. Um, that giant ass orangutan. Let's instead stop talking about man fire. Let's talk about that giant ass orangutan. <laughs> hey, John Favreau will tell you historically that that that, that animal existed. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got so we got Zach's take on the editing and like the. Um, Zach. I don't know, how would you even call? I don't even know what I'd call the 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 visual style and later on in the movie. It's almost like. Um, like infrared sensors and like night vision goggles and like they do weird overlays with different colored characters. How does this, you're somebody who likes the movie, how does that play for you? Is that distracting or do you kind of just like accept it's part of the movie and what you wanted to do? I want to add to the question. Do you think that it is enhanced by being in a theater? Because at home it's like not as engrossing and capturing. So in the theater, maybe you're able to be caught up in it more. So I want to know that. I think kind of what happened was that Tony Scott must have seen uh, City of God and then it was like, just hold my beer as like the whole rest of my career I'm going to devote to trying to outdo that. Because it's just pretty much every movie from this point on 
is going to have some degree of this sort of the crazy uh, chaotic camera work. And you just have subtitles just popping up of the English that's already being spoken and stuff, which I, I wonder how they would do that when the, they're playing it in foreign uh, languages. I wonder if they still have it popped up with the, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Zach. I think that in a theater, it probably does work better because then like everything works better in a theater because it's just you in the movie and there's no distractions or anything like that. And you're kind of just trying to get sucked into the universe. But I can also see how people, this would not work for them at all. And like I said, for like Domino, I think it's horrible. Whether he just goes too overboard with it in a couple of the other later Denzel movies, it just goes crazy. But like, I like this one where it during the Dakota and Denzel scenes, he kind of has a normal movie. And then it's when you get into the action, when Denzel's trying to get back to his, I guess, killing mode, where it all goes crazy and chaotic. And you got to think that also... At this point, he's losing a lot of blood and stuff, as you see every time he goes into the swimming pool. And I feel bad for whoever has to clean all the blood out of the swimming pool multiple times in a week. But uh, yes, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of that is his mindset versus, um, yeah. But it, 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 I, I think it's interesting. I think it works in this one for me, and it doesn't work so much in the other movies where he uses it. So, yeah, I, I don't know how he developed it or what he did. I know he did. Um, the BMW, they did a series of short films starring uh, Clive Owen, and they had different directors do each one. And uh, Tony Scott did one where there was Clive Owen and uh, Gary Oldman and James Brown. And it's it's more chaotic than this. I think it was the first time he probably ever used this style. Yeah. So I'm glad he at least toned it down a little bit from that. But yeah. <laughs> it is it interesting. Is it is interesting thinking about it as a way of telling, like, of, of showing Denzel's mindset and, like, his pain and his suffering. Um, I don't, I, I think it's an interesting idea. I don't know if it's always clear to everyone. I think that, um, I think you're right. This would definitely play better in theaters because I feel like this is the type of movie at home that is hard to get stuck in that world, especially as somebody who was coming into it for the first time. It was, it was hard to get engrossed. I found myself being like, um, you know, going off on tangents in my mind of other things and just being like, you know, cause it's just the type of movie you get into and you're like, you know, you're an hour and 10 minutes in and you're like, you're kind of, you, I feel like you're waiting for the moment, you know, Crimson Tide is like, I just watched Crimson Tide for the first time. Crimson Tide is like 15 to 20 minutes into that movie. You're like, Oh wow. I know exactly what we're focused on here. Like what's the goal. And men on fire is much more like, you know, I think Tony Scott's trying to slow roll it. He really wants to, he wants to develop this relationship. He wants to, to do a bunch of stuff that you don't really see in Tony Scott films. But, um, it, it it is it is definitely hard to get in, involved with. I think um, at home, I don't know if I'd ever go to a theater to see it. I don't think Man on Fire is something that um, gets brought back for revivals. Um, <laughs> they usually only bring back like the most famous things on earth. But it is an interesting idea to see like what would this be like if I saw this in theater. And I, I just rewatched today. One of my favorite parts is at the very end of that when the credits is like, we want to thank uh, Mexico City. It's a very special place. Like after watching so, this movie, no one is ever gonna go to Mexico I, City. That's one of the more problematic elements <laughs> of it. And I think to, this is think a little earlier on and the kind of tirade of um, drug ring movies that we have had in the past 20 years that, that really really exploit Mexico as this kind of like dirty shithole that's only, you know, for drug holes that really now, you know, has affected our a lot of our country's political ideals, unfortunately, um, as well, and, and our relationship with 
uh, the border with Mexico. And, um, you know, this movie just treats it in that vein that, that that's what it is just a dangerous, uh, place of kidnappers, um, and, and crime. Um, and that Zhao can go around and shoot people in the head and there's no consequence because that's what Mexico City is. It happens in Mexico there, City. No, it's, there's <laughs> some Mexico there's City. some accuracy to this. If you if you've read about uh, you know Mexico and their politics, like I, they have a they have a lot of um <laughs> there's a lot of chaos and a lot of like people get elected and then die two months later. Like I mean, not I'm a, not saying that there's not it. any kind of base in fact, but it also is just when you had this consistent one-sided oh, yeah. portrayal that there's no other, you know, kind of life out in Mexico City, then they, it, that's what creates the, the stereotyping of it. It's, it's gotten especially bad in recent years. I mean, we had like Sicario, yeah. Sicario 2, the Rambo movie, where it was like, you didn't have to make this in Mexico. I hate, by the, the Grand, way, Grand Torino. Then that's what I hated. There. I hated the most recent Rambo. Like I, Thought that was just the trash. Golden before it had such the perfect ending where he's just walking off to the farm at the end, and the, they didn't even make another one. Yeah, so <laughs> it was kind of a dribble. And they like they put it in a country where it was like, oh, maybe he's like helping the good people. And then it was, the last one was just like, I don't know why you're doing this. Why did why did this happen? It's just it's just a weird movie. Um, let's talk about the thing that the it, I think that it, we can all agree that this movie is better because Denzel is in this, mm. and like. You know, I was thinking, like, you know, I can't imagine Scott Glenn in this role. Like, I like Scott Glenn. He's a good supporting actor. Does not have the charisma of a Denzel. Like, I think – I'll let Zach go first here. Um, I think even – you don't like this movie. Does Denzel – what does Denzel do for you in this movie? Does Is he good in it, or do you think the movie drags him down with it? I think the movie drags him down. I think he's fine, and he, he's doing his thing, but they don't really give him that much time to add other than conversation scenes with him in Dakota – the whole half, um, I, second half of the movie is just watching him bash hands. And you could watch anybody bash hands. I don't think he gets a chance to add much bravura to that. I think Denzel loves doing that shit because he does it all the time. He's really into those movies. Um, but I don't think like he is needed. Um, I also feel like his characterization is very minimal. In a way, it's more like he is drunk and that is like that's what defines his grief that that's how you know he is sad and having a hard time because he's really an alcohol um which um i think in flight they're able to make drunk then he's able to make drunk denzel so much more complicated they combine that with the um denial of it and the grief and this is just like alcohol is purely used to show he's sad and he i don't think he's able to evolve it more than that so i think he's fine with what the script is giving about the elevates it Mm. And Matt, you really like this movie. How much is how much of a part of that is Denzel and his performance? Oh, I, I think Denzel brings a lot to the movie. I, I think it's definitely, like I said, it's definitely a different movie if like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone or something do it. He just brings the believability to it. And I mm. think that, that that's why you can actually do like that 30, 40 minutes there with just him and Dakota. Like you're, you're not going to have that with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something trying to teach a little girl how to swim and then bonding or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it'd be interesting to watch, but it definitely would not work. I am not convinced that Arnold would just sink in the water, right? Uh, yeah. muscle, does not, muscle does not float. Fat floats, Zach. If you get, <laughs> Arnold would sink like a rock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think I'm a little bit in between the both of you. I think that 
this movie is definitely better with Denzel in it. I, I think you put basically anybody else in this movie, it's much worse. I, I think it's most clear in the Dakota Fanning stuff in the first half. I do think in the second half of this movie, you could put a Jason Statham or a, I don't know, think any kind of Scott Adkins, think any action actor that kind of is, is nothing beyond um, like a physical presence in the second half of that movie. Um but yeah, in the first part, I think he, I think he does more than a lot of other people would do. But I also don't think that Denzel necessarily elevates the movie that much. I, I think he is. It's kind of the classic Denzel action movie, but more likely the ones I would see from an Antoine Fuqua rather than a Tony Scott, in where Denzel makes a story that shouldn't be necessarily good be good. But in this case, I think it's in some ways disappointing because you're watching Tony Scott and you're like. I've seen better from you and I've seen Denzel be better than you. In some ways, I think if this was a movie made by a, a nobody director, I think people would be maybe kinder to it because I think the expectation for what Denzel and the director would do would be less than what occurs when you do a Tony Scott movie. Hmm. I don't think it's director. I think if you had an actor less than Denzel, you'd be kinder to it because you have this, not like Oscars need, but, but a little more, um, you think it's going to be a little more intelligent than it is. You had a little bit more credibility when you have Denzel, and I don't think the movie's worthy of that credibility. I think if it was like a Stallone or like a Jason Statham, I would be able to just kind of let myself go and like have more fun. But I think the movie just takes itself too much serious on from watching it and just on paper by having Denzel. Um, Zach, as the person who doesn't like this movie, um, why don't you get like that as my new official title? <laughs> Zach, the person who does not like me on fire. That's my nickname for every episode moving forward. It's exact. Um, why don't you give the final your final thoughts, your final pitch to uh, our listening audience? Why doesn't Man on Fire work for you? Um, Man on Fire doesn't work because it is a greasy ass, shitty ass B action movie that thinks it's ready to win all the Oscars um, and going to revolutionize filmmaking um, because Tony Scott definitely, I think, had a lot of ambition here and ambition just, you know, flopped and failed in a way that is just, it's just hard to watch. I think the biggest issue is clarity. It's just really unclear what is happening. Um, you know, most of the movie, I, I know Matt compared the editing to City of God a little bit, but City of God, you still kind of understand everything that's happening throughout the movie and why those cuts are made. And when the words are on screen, they have purpose to kind of give you a place. But these words, like, don't have a purpose. Um, I just think this movie seems like it was made by a first or second year um, film student that just learned, like, all the editing tools. And you're, like, given an assignment to use pretty much as much as possible. So you just, like, do a bunch of shit um, before you learn restraint. And I think Tony Scott... Um, I was experimenting with the lack of restraint, which is fine. It's just, it, I, I think it, it, it fails. And Matt, you like this movie. You're the, the you're the, the fan on the podcast. Um, we did not know this going in. This just kind of happened to turn out that we all have three different perspectives on it. Give us your final thoughts, um, your pitch to the audience about Man on Fire, why you like it, and, um, you know, why they should watch it. And why it's the best film ever made. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to say this is the best film of even anyone involved with it, except for maybe Mark Anthony. But, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's like I said, I, I like action movies, and this one had some I had some interesting action scenes in it later on. And like I said, it's, it's very unusual for an action movie to actually kind of build up the relationship 
like this one did, and they had great chemistry between uh, Dakota and Denzel. And uh, yeah, it could be a lot better. Like I say, we probably trim out a good 20, 30 minutes of it, and it'll be a much stronger film. But I mean, for what it is, it's, it's, I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. I would definitely recommend it. If you want to see, uh, if you want to see a uh, Tony Scott and Denzel watch the movie you already seen, Crimson Tide, throw this one on. Yeah. Um, so I kind of in between you. I, I think that it is definitely a flawed film. I would say if you're a Denzel fan, worth checking out. If you're a Tony Scott fan, worth checking out. Um, if you're a fan of action movies and are interested in seeing people try <laughs> stuff, this is not, this is, it might get the rating of a mediocre action film, but it is not the intent of a mediocre action film. There are a lot of movies that are made as a three star out of five movies and they come out and they are three out of five star movies. This movie is made with the intent of being five out of five. It may not get five out of five from you, but at least there is, I think, value in watching people attempt to create something that they think is a masterpiece, even if it doesn't succeed. You know, you know it's a good chance to like hone your critical skills and judge why you think something works or doesn't. And, um, you know, there's a billion takes. You know, I was reading articles before this. Somebody was like, this is Tony Scott's masterpiece. I don't think that's the case, but... You know, if somebody can, maybe the person who hasn't seen this and does see it will agree with that. So I think um, in terms of that, worthy watch. Um, I would like to thank Matt for coming on the podcast. Um, hopefully next time we have you on, it will not be a show that, uh, <laughs> a movie that Zach hates and I find okay. Um, we did not know this ahead of time. It just happened to turn out uh, that we had three different takes and we decided to run with that uh, discussion format uh, for the episode. But uh, thank you for appearing. Um, we will absolutely have you back um, whenever we have another um, uh, movie that you have a similar, uh, you know, enjoyment and passion for. Or uh, we bring him on for when he hates, like I want to do with people. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Matt, if you have movies you particularly hate <laughs> but would like to talk about, uh, hit one of us up and we I will am signing you up for the episode on Pan. Zach <laughs> Floyd has tried to book everyone for the episode on Pan. Pan. Even I don't want a couple of episodes. On Pan. I was this close to watching Wendy today, but then I saw that straight up when I went with that. HBO so Max. <laughs> you made the mistake. You were scrolling through Netflix. When you should have been scrolling through HBO Max, which yeah, I'm going to say right here has a way better film selection. Than I'm really worried that society is making me um, underrate Wendy and put it lower down my top thirty. Years. Let's let's it should be like at least number four. I, I, I feel like it's dropped like number eight because society has told me otherwise. Talking to a Zach movie. So. That is the Zach movie <laughs> through and through. Um, but next week we'll be coming back. We will continue on with Denzel and Tony Scott, the third movie in their section, which is of course Deja Vu. So we've run into the interesting middle section of uh, their career, and uh, we will see what before Zach we, and I think. Before we get on trains, there's, I don't know if there's trains in Deja Vu. We'll have to find out, and we'll see. <laughs> okay. Hey, not bad. Maybe he's on a train. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Hey, one more time. All together. That man is on fire. Like, that man is on fire. Okay, good night, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>